Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. After a 25-year financial market and banking career, Scott Donakey founded Companies for Net Zero, that's CNZ, which brings together global business leaders via summits and networking events to share insights on delivering immediate climate outcomes. CNZ also publishes daily climate insights and education via its CNZ EcoForum smartphone app, which our followers will learn about in this episode. Since founding CNZ five years ago, Scott has built an extensive network of sustainability-focused business leaders in the New York metro area who are committed to delivering climate outcomes beyond talk. The Sustainable Finance Podcast will be participating in CNZ's upcoming Circularity Summit on May 18th and the Decarb New York Summit on September 14th which will focus on practical decarbonizing of New York real estate assets in response to Local Law 97, which we will discuss in a moment. But first, I'd like to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning in to this podcast, then you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment team, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities, or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Scott, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's an honor. Thank you so much. Scott, we're going to jump right in here to the questions that I have for you today. And the first one is about Local Law 97. Why is Local Law 97 so important for addressing climate change? And if you could give our listeners a little background on Local Law 97, that would be helpful. Absolutely. Thank you. So Local Law 97 is a law that's setting the guidelines for any buildings that are over 25,000 square feet in Manhattan, that they must reduce their carbon emissions moving forward by 2024. Uh, this legislation has been put in place uh, by New York. Uh, building owners, uh, REITs, uh, landlords, and corporate tenants are going to have to abide by Local Law 97. Um, the nice thing about Local Law 97 is that it's setting the guardrails for other cities in the U.S., Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, all the major cities, D.C., um, and they have different laws. But this is really the precedence and probably the most aggressive legislation in the United States to decarbonize buildings, which account for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions globally. So it's really important that we get the right people to come together to lead this in New York. And that would include uh, the building owners, uh, that would include the corporate tenants that are in these buildings, um, that would include um, the architects, the engineers, all the technology companies, um, uh, the consultants. Um, it's a very complicated, um, process, if you will, to decarbonize. There's over 50,000 buildings in New York City, um, and it's going to be a monumental task. But everyone needs to come together in this ecosystem, lean in, learn from each other, 
and really have a growth mindset to move this forward. And what's nice about Local Law 97 and the legislation is that it's putting together in place the economic incentives for uh, organizations to be proactive, to learn about decarbonization and what they can do to move forward, um, to lower rents, to get higher premiums. Um, in the case of, uh, of uh, retrofitting buildings, older buildings. So this is all very important for people to, to combat climate change. Um, and there's also, as I mentioned, a really big economic component that's driving this forward. Yeah, thanks for for mentioning the economic component there, Scott, because clearly what we're reading in the news on a day-to-day -day basis is the fact that a lot of companies that have been headquartered and or have offices, have had offices, pre-pandemic in New York City, they have a lot of their workers working from home, some of the yes. time at least. So this is a this is a big change in the way the infrastructure of the city is going to be accommodating companies. Can you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Well, I'll share some stories. So, you know, when you have these this legislation put in and you have an army of, you know, uh, politicians and attorneys, and they put this in years ago, after COVID hit, Things have changed dramatically. A lot of uh, people are, you know, obviously working remote. I live in New Jersey. A lot of my very good friends work in banking uh, down in the Wall Street area. They're working remotely. What's happened is now, you know, you have occupancy rates that may be at, let's say, 50 or 60 percent of a building uh, in New York. What's really interesting about this, let's say you have an old, older building and, and uh, it's, it hasn't been upgraded at all. Um, and it's only at 50% occupancy rate, the carbon emissions for that building are going to be substantially lower than a building that's at, let's say, 80 or 100% occupancy that could be very, um, you know, carbon intensive, let's say a data, a data center or a banking center or someone where, you know, somewhere where they're trading. Or So what's really interesting is that some of these companies may be uh, penalized for having a lot of workers working in these fully occupied buildings in New York City. So it's really kind of backwards. And I think that legislation needs to be restructured on a bespoke basis based on the where the building location is, how many tenants they have, um, what is their, their footprint. And there's very important steps on Local Law 97 to really plan this out. So the four steps that we talk about at Companies for Net Zero uh, we uh, phrase it as what's called MPET. So the first is uh, for the M is measuring the carbon in the building. So it's bringing in the companies that can come in um, and there's incredible technologies through AI, a lot of engineers that are working on this that can go into these buildings and find out what are the specific needs of the carbon emissions. Um, the second is the planning. So having these goals set up, uh, so they're short-term goals, uh, of a quarter, a half a year, a year out of how do we plan um, and bringing in the Deloitte's of the world, the McKinsey's experts that are in the built environment that can come in and talk to the building owners and let them know and the landlords what needs to be done to comply with local law 97. Um, the third part of it, the E, is the engagement. So the engagement is getting this complex ecosystem of the engineers, the building owners, um, the city planners. Um, another really big part of this uh, is the financing for net zero. So the banks, the private equity funds um, that can unleash this capital or open up capital with green bonds and other other ways, creative ways to help them 
um, with financing a lot of these uh, net zero projects. And then the D is the delivery. So what are the specific technologies that exist that can help with decarbonizing buildings, bringing in you know solar, bringing in air flushing toilets, bringing in battery storage, bringing in all the right technologies. There's still a lot of corporate inertia with um, Local Law 97, a lot of inertia with some of the building owners that may not have um, the resources or a sustainability director to understand this. And this is where our organization is coming in to bring all the people that can really lean in and learn from each other. And they want, they need to really develop or have a growth mindset of continuously learning. Um, for example, I know the Biden administration in the last week or so has come up with uh, building codes, an updated list of building codes. Um, so if I'm putting in um, you know, specific piping or I'm retrofitting a building and moving away from gas to electric, those building codes are going to enable that uh, building owner to get a tax write-off and a tax benefit. So it, it's quite complex, but very, very exciting at the same time. Yeah, thanks for that uh, more expanded perspective on the entire situation. It sounds it sounds like it's uh, going to be a lot of hard work, as you said, and a, a lot of give and take. But uh, at least the, the, the focus and the, the, the infrastructure is there for the work to go forward. So, yeah. now, Scott, we've already mentioned that you left a, a finance and banking career um, five years ago to begin and to launch companies for net zero. Tell our followers why you did that. Give us some background on why you left banking and finance to launch companies for net zero. Yeah, thank you, Paul. So I was really, it was pretty interesting, you know, in banking, as you mentioned, for 25 years, um, I ran <clears throat> quite a few hedge fund meetings. Uh, I was raising capital, sold hedge fund software, and the whole financial sector for 25 years. I've always had a passion for sustainability. Um, when I went to Rutgers, I worked for what was called New Jersey Perg. I used to knock door to door um, and you know raise money for clean water and for the environment. And I had a lot of passion for it when I was back in college. Um, but I had been working on this part-time during my banking career, doing a lot of research into the waste industry. That's where I started. And I found out that there was over 400 dormant landfills in New Jersey where I live. And my kids were younger at the time. Now they're 21 and 18. But five years ago, I thought, wow, this is not good where all this waste is going into uh, the water system, getting sent to landfills in the Midwest, affecting communities, lower income communities where they incinerate the waste. I was very inspired by a lot of the work that they're doing in Europe and California. And I looked at the area of New York, New Jersey, the whole Northeast, and saw very little being done in sustainability. And also thought to myself, well, we have Wall Street right in our backyard. If these banks and a lot of these uh, private equity funds um, can get on board and start funding net zero and zero waste, we could really move the needle in the Northeast um, in sustainability. Um, and then having my background with running hedge fund meetings, that was quite complex. I thought that I could bring that whole skill set into running um, meetings in New York and New Jersey to bring in the right people and create this whole ecosystem. So that's how it was launched. And it was just really looking at, um, you know, the capitalistic type of society that we have and seeing this shift 
of looking at resources um, because we're running out of resources of like clean water, uh, you know, precious metals and materials. I was fascinated with the circular economy. How can we marry the circular economy um, and reducing carbon emissions along with zero waste? How do we marry the two? And how do we get everyone educated to understand that we can make money and at the same time, we can have really positive impact on the environment. So that's that's how that's why I launched the company. Well, listen, it's very inspiring what you're doing, and and I'm um, I'm excited to be participating in the process with you. So now let's talk about this Circularity Summit that you've got coming up on May 18th, and let's begin with your understanding of what sustainability experts mean when they reference the circular economy. I think when you look at the circular economy, you know, we're looking at this linear economy uh, that we've been in, you know, for what's a pure capitalistic society. And capitalism's great. You know, it's created jobs. It's been, you know, a wonderful, um, you know, economic system, uh, you know, over the last 70 years, 100 years in the U.S. Now we see this, you know, the whole pivot into the circular economy. What does a circular economy mean? I see it as, you know, the need for companies to start allocating capital towards hiring, let's say, material engineers, material scientists, people that can come in and learn about, you know, changing the packaging, um, you know, for an organization. They can learn about landfill diversion. And it all starts with the C-suite. So our whole mission with Circularity is to really bring in um not just chief sustainability officers because they play a great role, but how do we also bring in really smart, um, you know, educated um, students that can learn and pivot in and get these jobs where they're long, you know, lasting, meaningful jobs in sustainability. And we see this really big transition going over over the last five years in circularity. We're running another a job fair. I just got off the phone this morning with Rutgers. Um, also on November 3rd, and they're really excited about, you know, having a job fair. And what's really interesting with Circularity, we have a woman on our board, uh, Rachel Dreyfus, who did, uh, she worked at Accenture for years, but she did a research piece and 73% of millennials down to Generation Z are making their purchasing decisions and their job decisions based off of climate change. Many of them right now, because of the economy, are living at home with their parents. So this is affecting over 200 million Americans that are making their decisions for everything based off of, you know, circularity. What we're finding, you know, is that there is this inertia, you know, for people that are, you know, let's say Generation X, my age or older, when they hear these terms, and then it becomes kind of political. But then we go into the younger generation, and they're really starting to get it when we go over to Columbia university last week or Rutgers or Montclair State, and they're super excited about this whole movement. Um, and this is really, really what inspires me about circularity. That's great. I'm really looking forward to participating in that event on May 18th. And uh, along the way in our conversations here, you've introduced me to a new role in corporate America, head of net zero delivery and innovation, which yeah. I know our sponsors at Acre will want to learn about. Can you describe it for our followers for the Sustainable Finance Podcast now? Yeah, so we feel, you know, speaking to a lot of different companies over the last five years, 
there is obviously a challenge with people in corporate America. I worked in corporate America for years, uh, big companies, big banks of individuals working in silos. Um, unfortunately, with the position of a chief sustainability officer, they have a really great job and an overwhelming role uh, of driving sustainability in the organization. So they're putting out their sustainability report. Um, they're, you know, answering to, you know, marketing. Um, they're, they're, they're educating everyone on what they're doing in sustainability. We feel that there needs to be a direct correlation with the CSO into the C-suite and this new role um, of a net zero implementation officer would be someone that would be next in line to C-suite or CEO of the company. The challenge right now is if I'm a CEO of a company or C-suite of a company, let's say I'm in my late 50s, and I'm going to retire in six years. I don't have any type of economic incentive for a net zero goal that's 2040, 2050, because I'll be retired. We feel that this new role also needs to have someone that has operational experience, financial experience. They understand the supply chain of the company and they can report to the CEO. And it's going to be very, very important to understand all this because of the new SEC disclosures that are coming out by the end of 2023. Companies will have to report on their scope one, two, and three. And this new role um, is going to be very, very pivotal in driving net zero forward. Um, Europe obviously is ahead of us, you know, probably seven to 10 years with this, with companies that are headquartered in Europe. And there are companies already that are driving these type of initiatives um, in Europe. We see it with Heineken, we see it with IKEA, um, and they're compensating. Uh, this new role as well, based on their sustainability initiatives and their net zero targets uh, with bonuses and with incentives. So we feel this is very, very important to move the needle. Um, there's also what we call in corporate America, the frozen middle. So we want to make um, the people that are in sustainability, many celebrities within their organization, if you will. So if we have someone, for example, uh, uh, Chief Sustainability Officer Ann Tracy of Colgate. She's been working with us for years. If they come out, you know, with a new, you know, recycled uh, toothpaste tube, um, or you know, they have a partnership with another company, we want everyone at Colgate to start understanding what they're doing in sustainability. So that could be the people that are in procurement. That could be a, you know, a, a um, an attorney. It could be someone in IT. What we find is the person that's working nine to five on their job sustainability right now, there's a great deal of corporate inertia because they look at sustainability as not being part of their nine to five. So they don't have any type of interest in it. But if you have that economic um, financial incentive tied to the SEC disclosures, you have a leader who's reporting to the C-suite, who's next in line to be possibly the CEO, that's going to drive real change in net zero. All right. So now we're we've talked and you've mentioned a couple of times the chief sustainability officer role, which is uh, being integrated into many companies um, as we as we continue to develop these processes. And I've noticed some sustainability chief sustainability officers on the rosters of your events, the speakers and the sponsors of the events. What's your take on how this executive role, often as part of the C-suite now, is developing in importance and authority across different sectors of the economy? 
Yeah. So the the role of chief sustainability officer is transitioning to a, a role um, again that is going to resonate with everyone in the company. They've been working in a silo, if you will, of a smaller sustainability team. Um, with the SEC disclosures, you know, being mandated at the end of the year, there's that economic incentive. For example, the Biden administration um, just last November um, allocated um, $390 billion for companies that are uh, have federal contracts yes. to report on scope one and two, and eventually they're going to have to report on scope three. So this economic incentive for companies is really, really important. That chief sustainability officer has to have that type of growth mindset to lean in to accounting, to lean into finance, to lean into legal, and get everyone on board to start learning about disclosures, about how products and goods are manufactured, how do they reduce uh, carbon emissions in their facilities. It's a very, very daunting task. We also felt over the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years that a lot of the focus has been on marketing. So again, instead of tripling down on marketing efforts, which we understand are very important, these companies are going to have to invest into supporting their chief sustainability officers and their team with higher paying salaries um, and with the resources to share all their findings with the rest of the organization. And that can drive real change. And we're going to see um, some really big changes going on at the companies also too um, are, you know, use the G word, right? Greenwashing. And they're not pivoting and making a change within what we call, again, the frozen middle in the organization. They're going to be massively disrupted because they're not going to be able to have the ability to um, some of these large green bonds that are coming out of Europe. They're not going to have the ability to hire, um, you know, new staff. These younger kids today want to work for a company that's dedicated towards climate change. Um, so all of these are great key factors for the chief sustainability officer moving forward. You know, you've mentioned the corporate procurement guidelines that came out uh, um, recently regarding uh, how the companies that interface as the suppliers for the federal government uh, with a majority of, the, of their procurement needs are going to be looking at how this or the federal government's going to be looking at how this f almost 400 billion dollars of capital or, or uh, procurement money is going to be spent and then you've also got the ira act that is another 400 billion dollars and i've heard some estimates that this could turn into a trillion dollar business on an annual basis actually over the, the next three or four years so we'll see what's happening and we'll keep in touch and and we'll get your perspective again soon on this issue. And Scott, uh, we've run out of time for today. We'll have we'll continue this conversation later. But where online can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast learn more about Companies for Net Zero? And how can they get in touch with you to speak about the issues we've discussed in today's episode? Yeah, so they can go on to companiesfornetzero.com, which is our website. Also, I would recommend um, our app, which is the CNZ Eco Forum. Um, the app is available for them to download um, for free and learn everything about net zero. And they can also email me at sdonaghy at companiesfornetzero.com. And I'll get back to them and I can let them know how we can partner in with them. 
Great. Well, thanks again, Scott Donachey, CEO of Companies for Net Zero. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website at acre.com to get in touch with the right individuals leading the way in your company. Sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Thank you.